Zimmer's Netter, just talking to teachers. Podcast pedagogy. What is Phil reading this week? Podcast pedagogy. Listening to teachers. Nailers Netter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about educational books, why we love them, and how we use them in our classrooms. With guest authors, publishers, podcasters, and of course, teachers. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Nailers Natter, the podcast, like I say, every week that retired and then came back and then retired again and then came back again. But we just can't stay away because of the quality of guests that we get. And tonight is absolutely no exception. So if you've been at Research Ed this weekend, if you've been on X slash Twitter slash whatever we're calling it this week, you cannot have not seen this book. So I'm delighted to be talking to Sam Chrome tonight about his brilliant new book, which is The Power of Teams, How to Create and Lead Thriving School Teams. And it's a John Cat book again. And I'll say this again, listener, you know, I am not on commission, although John Cat, if you listen, I feel like I should be. So welcome, Sam. Welcome to Nailers Natter. Oh, thanks, Phil. And I, I'm very glad you're not retired. So <laughs> keep going, please. <laughs> well, we, we do. It's a standing joke. Uh, I know that obviously T and Teaching were down at uh, Research at the weekend and they, they just troll me with uh, the number of times that I've retired and then come back and then retired and then come back. But, you know, people people want more. We're going to provide them more. And like I said, tonight is a great one. So like I said, listen, we're talking about The Power of Teams, which is uh, Sam's new book and what a book it is. So we're just talking off air there about you know, lots of education books, mine included, have been, you know, quite brief and, and short reads and nothing wrong with that, you know, for the busy teacher. But this, this is an epic. This is well-researched, thoroughly written, spent a lot of time writing this. And we have um, a whopping, oh, well, almost 300 pages, don't we, Sam? I think it's 300 something, 304. But uh, yeah, I haven't heard it referred to as an epic yet, which is like, it was great. I, I feel like I'm like Homer writing the Iliad now that you've said that. So I'm going to hang on to that phrase. <laughs> if it's not too late, that can go on the sleeve at the back, can't it? An epic, <laughs> says Naylor's Natter. I'm sure that'll, uh, that'll get you some lower, more sales. I don't think. Right. Anyway, look, more, enough of this frivolity, listeners. I think I'm just getting carried away in tonight because it's uh, a Monday evening, second week of term, and we're all excited. So the first question for you, Sam, is a pretty straightforward question, really. Um, what do you mean by a school team? Well, I should I should start maybe by going back to what researchers talk about as what is a team holistically uh, because there's kind of different arguments in the um, world of academia about t- when, when you're looking at teams and organizational culture and research that, um, that they distinguish between a team and a working group so essentially a real team is supposed to be a team that comes together to work on shared work products um, and actually when you think about what school teams often do that's not always the case we'd probably often be defined as more like working groups and what we actually do because a lot of times people get told stuff and they go away and make it on their own um not all the time but a lot of school teams work like that um however um i don't really like the words working group i think team is much better and we can all bond around that word so um a school team is 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 complex isn't it and one of the things that i always say when i do a presentation to people is just to ask them to maybe tell me and on vote how many teams they are members of because if you work in some organizations, I don't know, let's say you're a, an accountant, a, a company, you might just be in that one team, the, the accountancy team or the finance team, and you sit with them all day and you can go to lunch with them and you can socialize with them and you're always together all the time. 
if you want to go off and do an, an offsite to, to, to debrief about your current work progress, then you can do that. But in a school, we're probably members of four or five teams, ranging from pastoral to academic to uh, volunteer, like learning and teaching teams or coaching teams. So therefore, school teams are complex because we're in a load of them. They meet in various different um, intervals. Some might be weekly, some might be half-termly. And um, we may feel more aligned naturally with some of those teams than others. And we may have chosen to be in some teams and not particularly thrilled. And the example I always use, and this is not my personal opinion because I'm I'm a pastoral leader at heart, is that sometimes people say they don't really want to be on the year nine tutor team, <laughs> but, but they are in the year nine tutor team, and that's still a team of sorts. So a school team is hugely complex because of all of those different factors. Um, but ultimately, it's a, it's, a, it's a school-based team that work together for one area uh, of the school. Uh, but that's why I wrote this book, really, is to address some of the complexities and, and irregularities of, of school teams. Yeah, such a good point, Sam. And you, like me, um, as a deputy head in a school, you'll be part and parcel of many teams, some of which you're line managing, some of which you're line managing the line manager, but also, and I don't know whether you are, uh, obviously you're pastoral, but in terms of being still in the classroom, then you end up still being line managed potentially as part of being a, a subject teacher as well. So it is quite complex to navigate the dynamics of the particular role you play or the hat you wear within those teams. Absolutely. And I, I love walking into to various teams. I'm, I'm an English teacher, still get to teach um, a few classes, which is just great. Best best couple of hours of the day for me. Um, I love walking into the English department meetings and seeing what we're working on as a team together, um, especially when I don't have to lead those ones. And um, yeah, it's, it's just teams come in many different sizes and they hopefully by the end of this conversation, we'll find out a few ways to get them working. So they're really productive but also joyful and they're effective but also built around relationships and they do lots of great things that everyone wants wants to be part of brilliant well we absolutely will so we'll get into the first section of the book sam which is about team belonging and the first section of the first chapter is about psychological safety so just for the listener tell us a little bit about what you mean by psychological safety and how we as leaders can help to create that and what that means for the people that we lead as well yeah, it's a really interesting kind of term. I know that uh, you've, you've recently spoken to Leica Sharma, um, who's a great friend and, and colleague of mine who talks about this as well. And I wrote actually one of the case studies for her chapter on psychological safety. But um, I suppose one, one way I could describe it is almost to, to, to depict a scenario whereby if you could imagine, have you ever been in a meeting where there's an idea posed by the team leader and they want some feedback on that idea and... I don't know, a couple of people pitching some ideas, but you don't feel like you're ready to do that. It could be because someone's shot you down before when you contribute to an idea. It could be because the people that have just spoken are quite dominant normally and they don't necessarily like being challenged. It could be that you contributed a few ideas last week and actually for this particular team dynamic, you feel like if you do that again, you look like you're a bit pushy or you're a troublemaker. If you're on one of those teams and or you've experienced that in a meeting, then the chances are you're not in a team that has a lot of psychological safety because the principles of psychological safety are that people feel free um, to take what the kind of the pioneer of this um, of term Amy Edmondson calls interpersonal risks. So basically, if I disagree with you, Phil, I'm actually taking interpersonal risk there because you might turn around and say, well, that's not a good idea. You don't really know what you're talking about. 
So the idea is that psychological safety is, is when you minimise it into personal risks. Um, and what can leaders do to, to foster that? Well, they can do a few things. Amy Emerson talks about how the best leaders are don't knowers, where they're on a regular basis happy to admit what they don't know and ask the team for more input and help so they can tune up the things they don't know very well. She talks about how the best psychologically safe leaders invite participation. They ask people um, for their contributions. Uh, and that could be doing that with a sense of humility. So Hi, everyone. Right. So we I've tried this recently in our team and I think I've got a couple of things wrong. I, I haven't got that right. I really need your help um, and your ideas here to try and get this back on track. So I've made a couple of decisions that I don't think have gone very well. Um, can, can you give me some contributions out that might improve it for us? So you've invited that contribution, you've, you've shown a bit of vulnerability. And then after that, you kind of have to model to the rest of the group what it looks like to receive feedback, even when it's hard to take. And then, so the sweet spot then is then that the, the team themselves might begin to give each other feedback like that because they know it's an open, honest um, group. Um, and so those, those are some of the kind of core pillars of psychological safety. But the thing I would add, just two last things, is that Amy Edmondson talks at length how this culture of openness and honesty and, and minimizing interpersonal risks should be the foundation layer for teams to set extremely challenging ambitious goals for themselves because once you get to the point where you fostered a, a culture of psychological safety you're wow as a group now you are ready to tackle things together so you've got to be super ambitious to push each other forward um and the second thing is just like my kind of caveat warning it's really easy for a team leader to say hey i believe in psychological safety everybody um and it just be a buzzword that gets tacked onto a powerpoint so there, there are there are many challenges with coming with actually uh, introducing that and maintaining it successfully. Yeah, Sam, that's that's such a good point about the buzzword idea because it can kind of bo work both ways, that can't it? So I spent the summer talking to school leaders um, in challenging circumstances and one of the reflections that they maybe have is that, you know, creating psychological safety doesn't necessarily mean that everybody has to agree with every decision you make and there is no challenge. You've written about candor in there while saying that psychological safety is an essential factor it should also remember equally that psychological safety cannot exist without honest constructive feedback so is that a difficult balance to achieve in terms of not just thinking well i'm psychologically i'm, I'm safe because everybody agrees with me and if when we get a little bit of pushback we'll find that difficult so you know how do you kind of balance that out yeah i think that's probably just people misinterpreting um and uh, trying to misapply the term because the, the whole concept of psychological safety was based on the fact that you create the right conditions to have healthy discussions, healthy conflict, healthy debate. Um, there's no point having a psychologically safe team that don't ever talk about anything or um, because that's just, the, that's just a complete misapplication of the principle. So I think I see that as well, actually, Phil, people, people doing that because it's such a – everyone loves a buzzword to say their team is really progressive and doing this kind of stuff. But it's, you're right, it is harder to balance. But I think as a team leader, you have to actually name the term and say, look, we know from research that the best teams – create this culture and they do this by doing this this and this and the reason they do that is so that when they work on really tough work products together or they review sensitive issues of things that maybe are going well or not going well they have the culture to do that freely and openly so they can make progress and ultimately serve the children or the staff whoever the team leads the best they can so when you're introducing the term you have to say why what it's for it's not for high fives and you know handshakes and getting each other coffee it's 
to create really great work products. That's the whole point of having that psychologically safe team. So I think the leader has to introduce it like that and frame it as that from day one. Um, otherwise, it's just a it's just a waste of time. <laughs> No, excellent. Thanks, Sam. That's really well explained. And, you know, like I said, it, it's a very well-researched book. And obviously in there, there's lots of other places that listeners and can go to to kind of find the original sources for that. But I think the way you've put it is superb in terms of that everyday practice for, for busy teachers and leaders. So thank you for that explanation. Right, let's get into a sense of belonging. So uh, into the next chapter, what can the reader do, uh, or the listener in this case, to kind of create those higher levels of belonging. And again, I'm, I'm kind of going on the same theme here. We've just had a week of the first week back, inset days. This is going to be the year when we do this. This is going to be the year when we do that. Starting really well. So how do you keep those higher levels of belonging and make sure that that's part and parcel of everyday interactions in a department or in the school? I think you're absolutely right to talk about the first week back, the exciting inset sessions, the first department meetings, you know, I'm sure 99% of leaders last week have spent that time quite rightly introducing vision, values, um, behaviours that the team are going to exhibit that year to be really successful. But but the thing is, when you're members of loads of teams and you teach hundreds of different students, you don't really remember that session for very long. And this is part of, as you sort of said, your live day-to-day experience. And even I think sometimes in out loud, you know, sort of laughing out loud to myself about, you know, the Ebbinghouse kind of forgetting curve. And it's like, well, do you really expect people in 30 days' time to remember exactly what you said about belonging in the team if it's not been part of their lived experience day-to-day within that team? Um, so I think it's totally right to acknowledge that straight away. It's really insightful. The team has to have that those those kind of things that are, are part of their belonging cues, like you said, all the time, day-to-day. So that could be um, spending time in meetings going forward still exploring who they are uh some some people call it purposing activities where the team revisits its purpose and its vision at regular junctures throughout throughout the year um uh, it could be doing deliberate belonging kind of uh, cues and activities so for example just drip feeding them in you know one really powerful thing to do and this is based on some research is show a team um, its legacy and like the results it's had as its legacy so for example uh, there was one massive study where they did it with charities like what was the legacy of this charity's work but for us it could be right your team helped loads of students last year get loads of grades six sevens eights in english or maths or whatever go and find some stories from those students and what they could go on to next and share them in a team meeting. I mean, that's just one example of how to increase our sense of belonging and purpose. But you need to sprinkle those throughout the year so they're not just front-loaded at the very beginning because people don't remember that in November when they're struggling. And and so it's just about kind of thinking all the time, how can we constantly discuss our values and our shared kind of values as a group to enhance belonging? And then the other thing I would say about belonging is that one, we constantly reevaluate it. Our brain is doing that as soon as we walk into a room, into a building, when we start having a conversation with someone. It's not something that is we kind of think, oh well, I belonged twenty days ago, so I'm gonna be fine now. Um, so that's that's the first thing. But also I find my personal belonging really hinges on someone's dependability. And that we'll probably cover this a bit when we talk about trust as well, if we do. But I feel like if you tell me I belong, I'll buy into that. But if you don't do what you say you were going to do, then I won't feel like I belong anymore because you are no longer a safe person for me. So I think it's, it's definitely about words and values and act, and those sorts of things, but it's sort of about actions day to day. Do I belong to you day to day? Does If that makes sense. 
It absolutely does make sense. And I was just thinking there while you were saying that, and obviously you've written on this, but you, you're also living this as well. You know, how do you as a leader in school actually go about modeling that? Because there's the number of interactions and the number of people that you must line manage on a daily basis. How do you make sure that most, if not all of those team members have those levels of belonging? Is, is that you, you talked about the fact that it needs to be a consistent thing. So is there a way, you know, do you, do you go around and check in with everybody every day? Is it through line management structures that you already have? Is it through conversations on corridors? What kind of things do you do as a, as a leader to practically kind of maintain? Well, you've talked about your career, but how do you maintain those levels of belonging in a, in a difficult long year? Yeah, it has to be very deliberate. I mean, you have to, as a leader, deliberately set apart a significant part of your day or your time to fostering that in your team um, or teams, depending on how many people you line manage, as you said. So that, of course, that's one-on-one one -on -one check-ins. That's um, putting a lot of time and effort into the uh, meetings that you run, but then also the work products that you, you develop for them afterwards. Um, that's little things like showing gratitude where it's due. But like I said, mainly two things, my two top tips really for making sure your team still feel like they belong is one is having an open forum for them. So you, and this goes back to psychological safety really. So they always feel like they've got a voice. You're asking them all the time um, for about small decisions, big decisions. You're involving them as a group because that's really how people feel they belong. They feel like they're part of something. Um, so you have to foster that. Again, that could be group meetings, it could be one-to-ones, it could be like mini surveys um, or a whole mixture of those things. But giving people the open platform to contribute is a really easy way to, well, not an easy way, it's really difficult, but it's, it's a, a surefire way to increase belonging. Um, and the second thing, like I said earlier on, is just being dependable. So it, when I'm rank ordering my to-do list every day, always what goes to the top is if someone has asked something of me to check in on something to make something for whatever it is that's that's a thing and then you know sometimes your heart sinks because of the resource you want to make for your class as a leader sort of drops down the priority list and you think okay well i'll be doing that at 10 30 tonight but but for me the what the team asks of me or what i say i'm going to do for them will always go back to the top because then i know they'll feel like they belong and they're part of um of that group and they're important so so that's a couple of a couple of ways there no, that, that's brilliant. Thank you, Sam. I'm, I'm just looking at my to-do list and I'm thinking I might have got mine the wrong way around today. But uh, yeah, it's a useful reminder because like you said, you can be guilty of, of setting that tone at the beginning and doing those check-ins. But when you're up against it yourself with your day-to-day, -day, like you said, in a good example, you know, your own class or your worksheets or whatever it is that you need to do. But actually, you know, you need to wear that kind of leader's hat first, don't you, to make sure that everybody else is safe and okay and, and can get on with their work before you address yours. So no, a really, a really good... Uh, reminder i think for people listening there definitely yes yeah, um it goes back to you know the simon sinek book leaders eat last yeah. um, <laughs> get yeah. to the back of the queue <laughs> no great stuff okay then now this is a really difficult question for you to answer sam i know um in terms of you know i'm being deliberately provocative with some of this so i'm sure that the, all the listeners that are, are tuning in uh, will be thinking about times when they've had a particular leader that they've found it difficult to kind of get along with for whatever reason um but when trust breaks down between a team member and their leader, what advice would you give to the team member in terms of being able to try and work in those conditions or address that situation? And I suppose if the team leader knows that's a situation, how can they kind of rescue the situation and try to get back to that situation where they've got that, that level of belonging and that psychological safety? And I realize that was a massive question. 
Okay, I'll do, I'll do my best. Um, I really like the fact you asked about the team, um, what the team member does first. I think that's really cool and yeah, quite challenging for me. But um, I think, well, we're obviously all professionals, aren't we? And uh, we're, all, we're all professionals, we're all adults. I assume we all want to do better and we want to improve um, what we do. Um, so if I was that team member and I'd been part of this team and I felt like my leader was was not delivering, um, I would really hope that the the team member would almost feel able to go and have a kind of a sort of constructive one-to-one chat with their leader and just say, look, I know we're, we're working on this at the moment as a team, but I'm really struggling with with this aspect and I'm, and I'm not sure you're really fulfilling what you said you were going to Um and try and have an honest conversation like that. Uh, also, it's a big test for the leader to see whether they'll step up um, and kind of be part of that as, and, and, and handle that situation well. But I think I think they should be given the chance to. There have been times before when I've been either corrected or someone said to me, look, I can understand why you did that, but actually this is how it affected me. And I've thought, whoa, okay, one, it's amazing that people feel able to give you feedback because it's a gift, isn't it? Because uh, otherwise you just go with your blinkers on for your whole career and, and you think you're doing everything wonderfully and actually you're not. So two, it's, it's, sorry, one, it's really amazing that people feel able to do that, but two, you then have to do your utmost to, to dig in and, and do better and change and adapt uh, based on what the feedback they've given you. Um, I mean, we could go further into that. If the leader doesn't respond particularly constructively to that, then obviously the, the team member would probably have to escalate that to a to a line manager, uh, you know, sort of somewhere else um, in the in the hierarchy to, to to action that. There was a real problem of dysfunction there. And for the leader, I kind of just just said it a second ago, but um, leaders need to to really welcome and anticipate feedback and set the culture where it's the norm to ask for feedback because. You know, I think it's really easy to pretend that we don't need feedback. And also, when you ask for feedback, it creates loads of work <laughs> because because then you might have to tweak or change something and you had a set idea about when you want to, to do or achieve, achieve something by. Um, but the leader has to welcome and anticipate feedback in advance, I think, and not just wait for it to knock them on the head one day. Um, so you can normalize receiving feedback as a leader by encouraging it and anticipating it and, and not, not like I said, just seeing it as something that surprises you every couple of years. No, that, that's brilliant, Sam, absolutely brilliant. And and you're right in, in terms of, you know, the kind of that leadership role, it, having that opportunity to go and speak to the person and actually explain that. The, the leader may well not realise for numerous reasons that we mentioned before, you know, being too invested in the day-to-day, not being able to actually check in on the team and see what the team needs might mean that they're not quite aware that they're not fulfilling the things that they said they were going to do. So actually, they probably welcome some of that feedback. And and to be honest, Sam, I mean, just from a personal reflection, those sorts of people are really useful to have on the team, the kind that will keep you in check and will come and say, hey, hang on a minute, you know the time you said you were going to sort this out, you haven't done this yet, and you think, Ooh, oh, okay. That's yeah, actually I'm- quite nice to get that. Absolutely. I, I've, I lead a large pastoral team. And to be fair, I, I'm really proud of actually the, the kind of culture we have of, of everyone kind of contributing and, and that sort of thing. But there's a couple of people on there who I always know they'll give me the real deal. Um, and they know that I'll do the same to them. And it's a really lovely relationship. Um, it's not personal. It's almost like I said earlier, it's anticipated, it's discussed. Like we will, you know, as a team, we will bring up nicely and politely and with dignity with each other when things need to be addressed and once you have that normalized 
it's actually like you're almost starting you almost start to rely and look on those people to do that for you and then that's again that's when you know you've got it you've got something really good because you're actually desiring their feedback knowing that it'll come in, in the right way yeah agreed i mean i'm the person in um inset where you know it's i sometimes get glances from the rest of the slt because they look at me and think why have you opened this up to questions at the end of the discussion so i was talking about some decisions that we made with curriculum and, and they were they were quite a challenge compared to what we've done previously and i opened it to questions and and like you said about your team i knew who the people would be that would come and ask the questions but you know i could see people wincing next to me thinking why have you opened this up and you think well you might as well do it now you might as well get the open forum and, and sort of answer the questions at least it will reinforce the idea that you do listen i mean you know, it, it was quite uncomfortable at the time, but better that than just shutting it down, saying no questions, just get on with it, because that breeds resentment and that causes problems further on down the line anyway. Yeah, and, and actually, it, I think so. Yeah, good on you for doing that in such a big forum as well. But it really changes staff perception of leaders when they know they want feedback and they deal with it constructively. I think you give people feedback very differently not aggressively but you you probably give feedback more robustly with a bit more resentment when you've got as a track record of that person not dealing with it um whereas when people know that their leaders regularly anticipate and invite the feedback people give it without that kind of extra emotional baggage because they know it's going to be dealt with so it's delivered in a completely different way yeah absolutely right let's get on to so just for the listeners we are talking to sam chrome and we are talking about his book uh, which is a power of teams, how to create and lead thriving school teams. And it's a John Cat publication. Right. So, Sam, I was just getting on to looking next um, at the, possibly my favorite chapter, here, which is about purpose. And I absolutely love this chapter. and I love the case studies that you've done. And I, again, you know, obviously I have a bit of a personal thing in these um, in these conversations because it is my podcast and therefore I should be allowed to. But the case studies, obviously you've got Laker's case study and people can go and listen to Laker on last week's uh, podcast and she was absolutely brilliant. But the one that hit home with me is Lee Peachy, who I've, I've met uh, very briefly at a, of course, at a research head conference. Where else would you meet people, Sam, these days? Um, <laughs> I didn't get a cake like you did, but I did meet people there. And I just think that purpose is another of those phrases that is trotted out and everybody's got one. But actually, when you have a very clear purpose, as Lee clearly has, um, or clearly had at the, at the school he was at, I think it's the school he was at previously, isn't it, this particular case study? Uh, no, no, it's actually his new one. So he, oh, is it his new one? Um, right, even better. Yeah, so he he wrote this with Anna, and they they started together at the school, both new as head and deputy. Okay. Um, and they are they are an awesome team. Actually, they're um, they're they're really quite a force of nature. And um, this is about kind of year one um, of the of the project. And, um, and yeah, I agree with you. It's a brilliant case study. And uh, yeah, they, they work in a Catholic school like me, so um, sometimes I think that's a bit of a cheat code for like purpose and values. But they've taken the Catholic ethos and really like turbocharged it and yeah they, they are fantastic i'm hugely grateful for for lee and annie and, and anna uh, and laker as well of course um for their their case studies on purpose it really ignites what i've talked about and really brings it to life more better than i could <laughs> well no i mean and obviously you've complimented that wonderfully and all the stuff that you've done so i guess the, the question for this chapter is um and like you said i mean i've always worked in catholic schools for 20 years before I, I moved most recently. So I understand exactly the context that you're talking about, but how do you go about creating that purpose? Who's involved in kind of driving that forward? 
and then just talk to us about the power that when people do get behind that, you know, it really can, like you said, turbocharge school improvement and the enjoyment of pupils and staff working in those establishments. Yeah, if I can, I'm just going to read you a quote from the chapter, from not from me, actually, but it's from Katzenbach and Smith. And um, I actually read this to my the Research Edge crowd that I had on Saturday. Um, it's from this, this is great little book, a mini book they read for the Harvard, uh, they wrote for the Harvard Business Review in 1993 called The Discipline of Teams. You can actually get it now online as like a PDF, but I actually tracked down like a secondhand copy of the original little mini book, um, which is awesome. Um, they just write with so much sense throughout the whole thing. And it only takes like an hour to read, but um, this is just a quote from them about purpose so they say the best teams invest a tremendous amount of time and effort exploring shaping and agreeing on a purpose that belongs to them both collectively and individually this purposing activity continues throughout the life of the team by contrast failed teams rarely develop a common purpose for whatever reason an insufficient focus on performance lack of effort poor leadership they do not coalesce around a challenging aspiration so that's the end of the quote. And the bit I liked best there was about the, the purposing activity continues throughout the life of the team. I just love that. I think that is the bit that people often get wrong. Um, they'll have their, like we said earlier on, they'll have their away day. Who are we? Why do we exist? And then it gets buried and three years later they reread it and go, oh, we should probably change the wording of this. And, and so I love that phrase continues through the life of the team. And the other thing that they kind of underline in that quote, which I really believe as well, is that Yes, the, the leader obviously sets the tone. Um, Hackman calls, uh, Richard Hackman, who's like an amazing teams researcher, calls it a compelling direction that the leader has to set. The leader has to um, set that compelling direction. But um, as, as Katzenbach and Smith said in that, that quote there, you have to agree and shape that purpose together as a group because that's the only way everyone will buy into it and really live it together. Um, so I hope that answers your question. I just couldn't resist reading that quote because it's one of my favourites. No, it's a brilliant quote. And if you can send me that through, we will put a link up on the show notes just so that listeners can get uh, access to that because that, that's brilliant. That encapsulates it perfectly. Thank you, Sam. That's brilliant. Okay. So in terms of the next little bit, so obviously you've talked already about how certain kind of visions and goals need to be set by the leader, but bought into by the rest of the team. So I'm just thinking about, and I've written about this, Sam, in the past, and nowhere near as well as you have, and nowhere near as well researched. It was just mainly from uh, 20 years of meandering experience. But, you know, in terms of the leadership teams and the structure of, should, well, how important is knowledge? I know it sounds a stupid question, but how important is knowledge in that leadership team? And should the skill set of a leadership team ideally be quite complementary to allow the team to function more effectively? Yeah, this is a really interesting one. And I, I really enjoyed researching the chapters on kind of knowledge and expertise and then the, the chapter on, on sort of mental models as well. Um, I don't know about you, and I don't know about the listeners here, but I found that a lot of school teams that I've worked in in the past get kind of into that annual cycle of, oh, we teach these lessons and we therefore every summer we tweak these schemes of work and we introduce the current assessment policy and we tweak the mark schemes and we add a couple of like starters in uh, for retrieval practice or thunks back in the day or whatever. And we do that. And, and those teams basically just make stuff and change stuff every year. And it's all kind of revolves around, oh, we have this product. Let's tweak this product. Now, I think it's changing, but I found over the years that there are fewer teams actually really invest in, okay, let's ask a few key questions of this team. 
what knowledge and expertise does this team need to have and possess as a group to execute their remit effectively? What um, uh, knowledge and expertise do we currently possess as a team? What gaps are there? What knowledge and expertise do we not currently have but really aspire to have? And that's so sometimes I feel like there's that teams don't start off with that idea of knowledge and expertise as being something really aspirational that's really going to help their work. And then all those other things they do, those products they create, will be better because they've already invested in their knowledge and expertise. So I've, I have felt before that sometimes teams, school teams, just sort of sleepwalk slightly when it comes to knowledge and expertise. And I'm not trying to sound harsh, it's just been some of my experiences. Um, so I think more investment in knowledge and expertise is vital. Um, I, I kind of look at uh, the work of Ambition Institute and Barker and Rees in, in this one and the Research Researcher Guide to Leadership. Um, and if you, if you know me and if you've read the book, you'll know that about half of this book is actually about generic team practice from across sectors. So I'm, I'm definitely not someone that just believes in school um, knowledge and expertise as being the only way we can grow as leaders. But I certainly think for specific individual teams, they have to invest a huge amount of time exploring the knowledge and expertise they want, need, um, you know, and, and, and desire to have in the future for all of their team. Um, I can't remember what your original question was, Phil, but I've just gone on like a huge rant there about, <laughs> about the power of knowledge. No, but that, that was the question, Sam. That was, you know, when you're thinking about the balance of a leadership team, how important was, you know, kind of auditing and understanding and appreciating the different levels of knowledge in different areas and making sure that they're complementary so that you can work more cohesively as a team. Because, I mean, I'm sure that many teams that, that you've been part of, you know, may have a lot of experience and expertise and knowledge in a certain area, but perhaps they're lacking in other areas because and I'm going to get onto my PE teachers always get promoted to SLT routine again, but I've got to be really careful. <laughs> Um, the people don't shout at the uh, the podcast and say that, but you know that that does tend to be a stereotypical route into it, doesn't it? That PE teachers um, are quite good usually in communication, quite good pastorally, and therefore tend to end up in uh, SLTs. But perhaps without being rude and, and very generic, um, they may not have as much experience on designing a curriculum in English or maths or science, whatever it might be. So looking at that balance of the team across the board is really important and you know in the same way that perhaps governors do you know that that kind of audit of knowledge and audit of skills is quite an important thing and then signposting to particular training um, that you can do and you've obviously signposted there about ambition which we're huge fans of as well so no i think i think you absolutely have answered the question and always sam let's leave the listener wanting a little bit more so they can go and have a look at the book can't they Absolutely. There's one last thing I will say, and I can't even remember whether this is in that chapter, but um, learning together as a group is is really fun. Like, it's super fun because, say, for example, you're in a leadership team meeting, could be a, like a senior leadership team meeting. You're probably going to be there for a couple of hours, and most of that time you're probably going through lots of operational stuff. Um, so we we refurbished our, our dining hall over the summer, so we spent quite a long time in our first leadership team meeting this year plotting out the different queue routes to make sure it'd be as smooth as possible on day one. So that's really necessary to the school running well, but it's very operational. Um, and, and, and SRT meetings can become a bit more like that. They, they will be strategic as well, obviously, but learning together is super, it's just tons of fun. I love it. I love coming in to learn. Everyone on that leadership team is going to have a huge body of knowledge about their particular area they work in, area of responsibility. But how often do leadership teams have, I don't know, a rotor where one of them starts the meeting about one of their areas of expertise or knowledge 
And he spent 20 minutes just going through and learning together or learning from that person and upskilling the rest of the team. And then you move on to the next person and the next person. It's fun. It improves people's knowledge. They get a greater awareness of the other people's roles in the team. Um, and it means that, yeah, okay, you're a bit happier almost to do some of the operational stuff because you've fed each other um, at the start of that meeting. And, and that's not exclusive to uh, to leadership team meetings. Well, I've got a degree in Gothic literature and, and I'm an English teacher. Um, why am I sharing that in meetings, you know, with my with my team so I can upgrade their knowledge and expertise or when they teach that at A level or whatever. So um yeah, I think knowledge is sometimes when people say knowledge they think of like facts and memorizing. But actually learning stuff is just fun. And learning stuff in teams is even way more fun. Um so I really advocate teams when they're investing in this knowledge and expertise process they make sharing and, and, and learning as a group a big part of that. So it's energizing and productive. Brilliant. Listener, this is why I love doing this podcast because obviously I get to speak to people like Sam and I get to read these high quality books, but the enthusiasm, I'd love to work for Sam already, listener. I mean, I can I can hear the enthusiasm coming through this and I know that was the case as well uh, down at Research Ed in the boiling heat on Saturday as well. So Brilliant. Right, Sam, are we all right for a few more? Have you got uh, have we got time for a few more um, questions? Yeah, let's go. Let's do it. Superb. Right, so another bugbear of mine is about communication. So one of the biggest criticisms of any team is lack of communication or um, ineffective communication as well. So what have you read about communication and how can the listener and the reader organize that more systematically in the ridiculously fast-paced world of a school? Well, I think I'll probably start by saying this is not a plug. I know we talked about John Kett earlier. This is not a plug. But if I can mention, um, obviously, we're probably, I'm sure teachers have friends of the show. Um, we, as a school, subscribe to SchoolTap, which is their like their paid school survey uh, service. And um, that's been like, really revolutionary. It doesn't matter whether you use TeacherTap or not. But I guess what I'm going towards now is that we regularly survey our staff like every two weeks. So we do like a little on awful approach to surveying. Um, so the way that we, we structure that is nice positive question at the beginning that we can share with all staff like tell me about something that's gone really well at school recently or tell me something one of your students did that made you proud then we ask uh, sort of just like three or four questions a bit like the app just keep it short and sweet um, about a particular area so one might be focused on behavior and the next one might be focused on curriculum or whatever and then we finish with a generic um, constructive feedback one like I wish leaders could help me a bit more with dot 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 so I guess the first thing I'd say is, is that communication whether it's which way, whichever way it is from staff to you or you to staff, um, things like surveys and collecting that communication should be a little and often approach rather than kind of saving up everything um, for like big, big surveys. So um, that's just the first thing that pops into my head when I think about communication is, okay, uh, I could have looked at that question and immediately thought, well, how do I communicate with staff? But actually it's more important for me at the moment to think about how can they communicate with me so that I can make their experience better. Um, and Second to that is that communication does come up on the surveys all the time. And I know that when I've run webinars with teacher tap and spoken to other school leaders, that's what they hear about the most. It's communication from staff that don't always feel like it's consistent enough. Maybe there's too much of it. Maybe there's not enough. Maybe there's not clarity, that sort of thing. So I think school leaders need to listen to staff and ask, 
what do you think of communication from the leadership team? What do you think of communication from your particular line manager? Let's agree some some parameters for communication. Um, on an individual team, so one thing I do with my pastoral team is I send them a weekly bulletin, 4.30 on a Thursday, because we agree that as a group. That's what they wanted to hear from me, because then they'd have time to look at it before Monday. Before I asked them what they thought, I used to send them a Monday morning bulletin and they, they eventually told me they didn't like it when I asked how it was going because it was they got the Monday morning shivers when they knew I was about to email them. So that was bad communication from me. It was well structured, but the time wasn't great. The timing just caused them a bit of anxiety. So we agreed a better time and method and now I do that. So I guess in summary, what I'm saying is whatever communication strategy you go for, have you agreed it and, and kind of got buy-in from the team or teams? And do you listen to their views about it? Um, or are you just kind of on emit uh, the whole time? Does, does that answer the question? Because I've got um, I've got more that I could go into if, you, uh, if you'd like, Phil. I'm just having so many moments of kind of revelation here, and I'm sure the listeners are the same. So I'm just sitting there thinking, I, I spend my life complaining about the number of emails that I get. I spend my life complaining that perhaps just come and speak to me rather than send me, you know, 40-odd emails in a day. But you've just kind of made me really realize that have I ever asked people which method of communication they prefer to use? Have I ever said, you know, I've done a survey about the use of emails? You know, a weekly bulletin perhaps would be better. So, I mean, already in terms of advice, you know, that that's superb. Just thinking about the best way to communicate and asking people which way they prefer and then going down, it, it's, it's so simple when you put it like that, but lots and lots <laughs> of tools don't do that, do they? They just kind of exist in a, in a maelstrom of communications that are either corridor conversations or emails or bulletins or meetings or goodness knows what, and you've just streamlined it and made it a lot more simple, which is why you are the guest tonight. Brilliant. <laughs> well, the, the other thing I, t- I mentioned in the book is actually a blog by Adam Boxer from about three years ago. Um, this is when he was a head of science and he um, his team actually created a set of like etiquette for how they communicate. And you can there's a, the, the blog references in my book, you can find it on Adam Boxer's blog. And the team basically wrote out a play-by-play of like, if you want to find a resource for one of your classes, you go to this team's channel here and if you have a question you put it in on the chat there if you want to find out more about your shared classes with someone else you go to this channel here so what they did was codified where you find stuff and how you ask questions without needing email so therefore the team could just do their thing and when something popped up they knew where to find it or ask and that communication would only go to the person it needed to on that particular channel rather than being opened up to everybody. Um, so, and actually, he said it was a, it was driven by the team, that communication. It wasn't him as a whole. The team kind of created those parameters for communication. And we, we're lucky now. We've got loads more shared systems like SharePoint and Teams and that sort of thing that makes that really simple. Um, so there's just no excuse for overflow of email these days. As there, are, there are genuine alternatives. There are, and Adam is very good on the topic of emails as well in terms of, uh, you know, very protective about when you should be able to use those and not. But we, we won't get into the whole the email debate as well. That, that, <laughs> that, that's great. And again, a shameless plug, if you anyone wants to listen to Adam, you can go back into the back catalogue. We have got an episode with Adam talking about um, some of the things that Sam just mentioned there. So that's another great uh, link in there. Right, penultimate question, Sam, if we can, which is um, around meetings. So, you know, you've mentioned about meetings earlier on and you've alluded to a few points that, you know, you consider to be useful in meetings and the way meetings are run. So do schools have too many meetings and could you give us some characteristics from your research and your uh, experience of what a good meeting looks like? 
I suppose I'd start off by saying that um, meetings are about purpose. So the first question is, I don't know if they have too many meetings, but is there always a clear purpose for the meeting? There's nothing worse than going to a timetabled scheduled meeting and it feeling like there was no purpose to getting those people together in a room. My, my view is that if you're going to gather a group of people together who are expert teachers, who have got tons of knowledge and experience and ideas and wisdom, gathering those people together, you want to you wanna make sure you utilise that experience by gaining their views, getting them into discussions, because they've got all the tools they need to do that. If you're going to gather all those people together in a room and just tell them a list of things they have to do or give them a list of dates, that's such a waste of time for the collective brain power in the room. So I don't really have a comment necessarily about do we have too many meetings, but I'd say if your meetings are purposeful and they uh, utilise what we've got in the room and this group of people, then then fine, they are worthy of your time. But if they're not, then then there's really no point doing that. And I think we we go to meetings with a bit of baggage ourselves, don't we? Because I'll, we're thinking, oh man, I hope this meeting finishes on time. I've got loads of marking to do. I've got a call parent, uh, and the world sinks or your heart sinks when you get into that meeting. You already feel like you've got loads to do, and you can just tell it's going to be a monologue from the team leader, or you're just going to go through loads of admin, and and you think, oh, you know, so and it's such a missed opportunity, like. For me, a pastoral team, we don't actually meet that often on the calendar. So when I get those people together, I've got to, I've got to light some fires. I've got to do something that makes them really proud to be that team and energize to work on that team. And also, it's a, it's a rare opportunity to get their views together when they're when they're here as a group. So I can't miss that opportunity. Um, so yep, so that, that's the first question. Good characteristic, sorry, characteristics of a good meeting learning i said that earlier on every meeting should have some opportunity for group learning i think some form of learning so everyone comes away having picked up something shared something get that energy buzzing in the room um but also there's there's a platform in the in that meeting to feedback and discuss things that the team are doing um some teams might not feel ready to do that straight away so we could even try like the old sort of think pair share but in a team meeting so everyone have a think about this topic i really want some help with Right now, you're going to talk about it in pairs, then fours, and we're going to go across the whole room. And that's just one little method. I talk about others in the book as well, but those are just some methods to how to maybe start encouraging more discussion if that is not currently the norm of your team. Brilliant. Thank you, Sam. Right, last one, and hopefully it's the most controversial to the end. So I, I unpicked this with Laker. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to um, <laughs> yeah. Laker. was talking about conflict in teams. So obviously, I say obviously, the, the listener knows this. I've been doing this for quite a long time, which just means I'm old, basically. But I can see how things have changed over time in terms of the levels of conflict and the way that we go about addressing disagreements, you know, um, some of the early staff rooms that uh, I perhaps existed in and some of the uh, head teachers that I had to start with were um, quite forceful in their, um, in their handling of conflicts. Um, but, you know, the, the team seemed to work quite well and we, and we all went home and we were all fine. Probably usually went down to the pub together afterwards and all of those kind of things, but things have changed. So, you know, are teams too kind of sanitized now that everybody has to get behind the the kind of the purpose and the ethos and the organization of the team? Is conflict such a bad thing? Uh, and how can you handle that in a team? And what kind of advice would you give to, to, to somebody to be able to handle conflict from within their team? Because it's, it's difficult, isn't it? We're not used to it anymore, kind of conflict. 
Yeah, I suppose it depends how you frame conflict. So I think conflict is really healthy and, and productive, but then I view conflict as just opposing views. Um, and, you know, when you look at the research about team conflict, it talks about kind of task-related conflict or interpersonal conflict. A task-related conflict is absolutely to be encouraged because there's very little chance that in a team of eight people that everyone will have the same exact view on something that the team wants to do. So if you don't have... Uh, any form of task-related conflict in that team, I'm afraid your team is is um, not feeling honest enough to really contribute, and therefore it's a waste of everyone's time because everyone will have a different view. So that's that's the first thing is how it's framed. Um, now, obviously, we don't want interpersonal conflict. We don't want to f- people to fall out over their traits um, or, or that kind of thing. We want people to 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 be united. I guess to begin with, it comes down to if we have really well-established values that we share, like if the team has been involved in that, in that purposing activity that we talked about earlier on and agreed on their values, and also I talk a bit in the book about how values can translate to behaviours. So the best teams agree on their values and then say, okay, that's these are the ways we will see those values in action. If you have a really firm foundation of values and behaviours and purpose, then when you do approach conflict, and I'll talk about more that, that more in a second, you can always go back to your values. You can talk about that. Look, we agree that this is the way we work on things together. We agree that when things come up like this, our value of dot, dot, dot meant that we would handle it in this way. So it's a bit like you would with a child, like saying, look, this is our school culture. This is what we agreed the other day in assembly when we all talked about this together. And actually, I'm not sure you've quite met that just now, but I know you want to, and I know, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think conflict is really healthy. I think it's just debate. It's discussion. It's pooling the expertise in the room and learning from each other. Um, But, you know, I I explore some research in the book about how low-performing teams tend to address conflict only when it arises um, and deal with it in quite an ad hoc, oh, my gosh, someone's just disagreed with someone else, what do we do? Um, Whereas the best teams acknowledge we will disagree, we will have opposing views, and when that happens, what we're going to do is dot, 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 you know, work together to find a solution, make sure it's never personal, listen to each other and respectfully, you know, because that's our values as a team. That's how we get stuff done together. And also to acknowledge that the best work this team will ever do will probably be based on someone disagreeing because it will make us think more widely about the problem. So I'm, I'm, I feel really, um, really strongly about this one. I think task-related conflict in particular is is a kind of a lifeblood of the team. Um, other, otherwise, people aren't being honest if they're saying that they all agree and, and that it goes quiet when the leader says oh should we do it like this yep yep great you know that there's been a there's been a lack of honesty from the room in that situation and that that goes down that goes back to the foundation layers of the team to begin with obviously this is a slight oversimplification um in a in a brief discussion but but overall i think conflict should be anticipated um narrated beforehand and then that will help the team work through it really really uh, productively when the, when the time comes it's a superb sound. I mean, that's a second real sort of light bulb moment for, for me there. And just like I said, reflecting back on, again, personal experiences and, and things over time, just such a really eloquent, excellent explanation of the difference there. Because, you know, in the day-to-day maelstrom of a busy school, um, you do tend to conflate that task-related conflict with potentially, you know, potentially thinking that those are personal conflicts as well. And actually, mm. if, you, if, you, if you go back to, like you said, the core purpose and your kind of ground rules and the way you deal with things that actually you can disagree agreeably, can't you, to quote uh, the rest is politics and, and and actually come up with a better solution. So that that's, that's a real that, eye-opener for me. That, that's that been brilliant. Thank you. 
that's actually a really good point you just made there. It, teams that don't talk about honor rate conflict in advance, it feels like, like you just said, it feels like a personal attack when someone disagrees with your point. Even if they haven't said anything remotely personal about you, your heart rate goes up when someone disagrees with something you said. You feel shocked. You feel like affronted. Um, but but actually, someone's just maybe disagree with something you quite constructively. But we're not we're often not used to it, um, and that's why the team has to invest in that discussion before it happens, so that people don't feel that kind of fight or flight response when someone's just just even just you know um, slightly disagree with the point that's been made. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for creating psychological safety in this podcast, because I feel like I've been able to open up and discuss lots of things um, that hopefully helps the listener to kind of contextualize the kind of stuff that you're talking about as well. So thank you, Sam. It's been absolutely brilliant. One of my favorite all-time conversations. And I do not say that to everybody, as everybody can listen back to 100 and, 167 episodes. Listen, if you can find me saying that again, you win a prize. Um, okay, just to finish off with Sam, so can you just tell us a little bit about where the book's available, where listeners can get it from, where you might be out and about speaking to people about the book, and just a congratulations from me and from us, because it's already on the bestsellers list, it's right at the top of the charts in all categories, education and otherwise, so congratulations, because I know how long these kind of things take, and I know how much work you've put into that, so massive congratulations, really well done with the book, it's superb. Oh, th- thanks, Phil. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a real blessing. It's it's a passion project. I'm uh, it's not, I'm not someone who just wants to write books and, and anything like that. I just this has been like a passion project for a couple of years now. So I'm so glad it's out there, and even more glad when people, you know, people like you that I really respect to actually have got something from it. Um, yeah, you can find it on Amazon. The Power of Teams. Um, I currently have not actually got any more conferences lined up um, to go out and about. I, I kind of. Um, got a bit of conference fatigue in the spring and, <laughs> spring and summer, but I will definitely be around at some point. Um, and yeah, I just really love engaging with with other team leaders on, on this stuff. So I regularly get people kind of messaging me on Twitter, and I'm really happy to have a quick chat with people about their teams. And and for me, it's like you just said, I learn as much from them as they as they do for me. So. Um, yeah, a huge thank you to you for having me on and, and all the people that have supported me recently. Um, I've got a lot of good eggs that have kind of really been um, encouraging and supporting um, and uh, very grateful to everyone for, for kind of helping me promote this, what I think is a really important message. It, it absolutely is. So Sam, thanks so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Phil. Thanks very much. Just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Nailers Natter the book ideas and advice from the collective wisdom of teachers. Nailers Natter brings together a wealth of advice from the most influential voices in education today. In this exciting, one-of-a-kind book, Phil Naylor revisits the very best interviews from three years of education podcasting, drawing on the advice and opinions from some of the world's most innovative educators. Available now for pre-order from Amazon and out on July 7th, 2022.